Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show. Uh, but for today's episode, I wanted to mix things up a little bit and I want to have a co-host. So I've invited Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being. Greg, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. It's cold out now. I love my cold weather. Very exciting times. That uh, that makes one of us, but I'm glad you're happy. What, what's your ideal temperature? Just perfect day, perfect weather. What does it look like? Uh, oh, man. Anywhere between like 65 and 95. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a generous kind of, range. Yeah. That's kind of my ideal temperature range. You, you live in the right spot then. That I works. Do. I do. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I think mine's about 20. I like 20 Fahrenheit. Okay. Yeah. That, that's fair. Um, I, I think if I lived in a place that got more than like 10, 20 degree days over the course of, of a year, I, I would just leave. Like I can't, yeah. I can't do that. Yeah. Uh, my my girlfriend, as you know, uh, not very fond of cold weather, mm-hmm. but every year I drag her to the mountains for a, a little ski trip. And this past year, it got to like minus seven. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think she had second thoughts. But the thing is, once you're there, there's no going back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that uh, I, I think it's unnatural. I think it's I think it's an affront to the natural order. Uh, humanity evolved in Africa. And every every place that we spread that is further from there, especially latitude wise, um, I, I I just think it's I just think it's a bad move. It ain't right. Um, we don't have we don't have enough hair. We don't have the blubber. We don't we clear <laughs> humans clearly don't have the physiological adaptations necessary to survive in those conditions. And like, yeah, sure whatever like we're smart we can make clothing we can make fire shelter whatever to to be able to technically survive in places that we're not physiologically adapted for but like you know so someone can be like ah i i love the weather in boston or whatever but like no you don't like that's that's stockholm syndrome it's like (laughs) we can live underwater more or less indefinitely in submarines and i think if someone was born on a submarine they might say you know what I don't really like seeing the sun. Like that's that's bad. That's not too bright. That's not what I'm into. But no, like that's completely unnatural. Uh, hot weather is is what humans were were meant to live in. Yeah, it is funny because like if you take a undergrad course in physiology, you'll spend like a whole lecture on uh, human adaptations to heat exposure, and then you get to cold exposure, and they're like, "Have you tried just going somewhere else?" Yeah, or like buying a better jacket that, that's about it that's the the spectrum of human adaptations well yeah i, I mean you've got you've got shivering um, yeah shivering a modest impact from a little bit of residual brown adipose tissue but yeah i i mean compared to compared to sweating like sweating versus shivering for dealing with temperature fluctuations not even not even a comparison sweating is so sick like that yeah. dissipates so much heat that's another thing Compared to every other animal, like just about every other animal, humans are are better adapted to deal with heat exposure. Like sweating is a very unique adaptation that is extremely effective. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we're we're not we're not supposed to go to cold places. That is that is my hot take, and I'm sticking by it. Also, I mean, like when you get cold enough, 
another adaptation is just your your body diverts more blood to your core to like make sure your organs stay heated and whatnot. Yeah. What does that lead to? Frostbite. Your body's telling you like I'm so poorly adapted to the cold. You're going to lose a finger to learn this lesson and then hopefully <laughs> you leave and go somewhere warmer. Um yeah, no. I'm I'm a I'm a warm weather guy. Yeah. I, hey, that that makes sense. Um so we have some questions to answer. This is going to be a question and answer episode, but w- before we get to that, uh you know, there's people out there who enjoy the show and they want to support it. So there are many ways you could do that. Uh, you could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get the show. Uh, you could sign up for our email newsletter. We send out uh, nice research updates every Wednesday. Uh, so you go to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter and get some really nice research-related information in your inbox every single week. Uh, if you're looking for a virtual coach, online coaching, we offer that at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. Uh, if you want to get a discount on your supplements, there's one place to do that. You go to bulksupplements.com. You use the code SBSPOD. You get a 5% discount. I actually did that the other day. I, I'm, uh, I had been getting like a ready-to-drink protein beverage, mm-hmm. uh, which was like pea-based, but I've decided I'm going to try to get more creative with it and mix. I got uh, pea protein, rice protein, and soy protein. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put it all together into a big, you know, Dr. Trexler's plant-based mix and... Uh, We'll see how it goes. I, I hope everything mixes well. Very on the financial side of things, j- just think about. Here's a little bit of FOMO for the audience. If you would have taken the money that you saved in, with that five percent discount buying supplements at BulkSupplements.com with code SBSPOD at checkout, if you would have taken those savings and invested them into put options on FTX, you would be a billionaire right now. So you know, uh, just use that discount code at checkout. Take your savings. Every every crypto related thing that seems here's a here's a good stronger by science podcast rule for the audience. Any crypto thing that might go through through your head for half a second, I think this might be a scam. Guess what? It's always a scam, a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> so yeah, just just try to find a way to to short those things, and you know you only need them to hit every so often. But yeah, you can turn you can turn five dollars in in supplement savings into like probably 30, 40 million if you just bet against every crypto thing that seems like it might be a scam. Like it will pay off. Yeah, I, I think so. We have all of our disclaimers on the show about not being doctors and all that stuff. Um, I've seen some people who do financial advice and they say, by the way, I'm not a financial advisor. Don't uh, don't take this advice. I don't really know how those disclaimer works, but uh, worth mentioning. I, I don't think that you are a licensed professional in the field of finance. Uh, just putting that out there. Uh, but no, I, I click on too many things about um, like investing and things like that on Instagram. And dude, I get the best posts in Hell my yeah. newsfeed. Like I get so many things that are like, hey, did you know that if you invested 40 grand in the initial IPO for Walmart, you'd have a lot of money? And it's like, yeah, I knew that. I, I didn't need this post. But I think looking at, dumb financial posts on Instagram that present themselves as insightful and smart might be my third or fourth favorite hobby. Nice. And the crypto is just crypto on Instagram is the best. So highly recommend that. But anyway, back to uh, shilling all of our products. Uh, Big news this week. So this episode is going up on the 21st of November. And everyone knows what that is. That is the first day of our big 
Black Friday sale for the mass research review. So best prices of the year, big discounts on all mass subscriptions. So we've got monthly, yearly, or lifetime subscriptions. They're all on sale. Uh, that sale begins the 21st of November and it ends on the 28th of November and proceeds uh, do go to charity. Uh, so this year uh, we're donating to a charity uh, that provides hunger relief. We're, we're donating basically to a big food bank charity to make sure that people get fed during the holidays, which is always good. Uh, so uh, basically the, the amount that goes uh, to charity is like uh, your first, the first month of your subscription, or if you do a yearly or a lifetime subscription, it's that same amount. Uh, I, th I think it comes out to like $21 or something out of those. So um, the sale does benefit uh, charity and it's a really good cause. And I would say it's a really good product too. Uh, and then finally, if you want to support us, you can check out Macro Factor. That is the diet app that we co-created with a really talented team of developers we do offer a free trial for that. Uh, I know everyone the week of Thanksgiving is saying, you know what I want to do right now is begin tracking. But guess what? We have a special feature within Macro Factor for tracking your Thanksgiving meal. We've talked about it on the show. You literally open it up. You tap the little microphone button on your keyboard. You say Thanksgiving dinner and boom, it brings up a pretty good representative Thanksgiving dinner. So all of our folks who are tracking with Macro Factor Thanksgiving is going to be a little bit less stressful uh, for those who choose to track that day. Uh, anything else? Or are we good to go here? I think we're good to go. All right. So let's move on to some questions and some answers. Uh, first one, really quick one from Deborah. Uh, the question is, is there any issue in approaching a minimum dietary fat target as a weekly minimum rather than a daily minimum? So for example, uh, you know, if you go to strongerbyscience.com slash diet, uh, I talk all about, you know, how I would go about putting together a diet. There's a little formula about how to calculate your kind of bare minimum fat intake that I would personally feel comfortable with. Um, admittedly, that is a gray area in the literature. Uh, trying to find a really solid evidence-based minimum fat target is actually a lot harder than you would expect. Uh, the literature is surprisingly unclear about that. Um, so, uh, but anyway, so we've got that formula in there and people have wondered, you know, much like this question asks, do you have to hit, you know, that minimum fat target every single day of the week? Or do you want to just make sure that throughout the entire week on average, you're getting at least that amount, that amount per day. So is it a daily thing or just averaging it out over the week? And I would say when it comes to fat intake, Averaging out over the week shouldn't be a big problem. So like, let's say, for example, your absolute bare minimum for fat is 35. Maybe you have a day in there where I would never do this just because like getting really, really low fat intake, you have to work pretty hard. Like fat finds its way into most diets. Yeah. Um, so you have, to, you have to work pretty hard to avoid fat if we're talking about on the scale of like 15 or 20 grams a day, right? So, but just hypothetical example, your your daily fat minimum is like 35 grams a day or 40 grams a day. One day, somehow you only get 20. Probably not a big deal. You make up for it over the rest of the week and average out at least 35 grams per day over the course of the whole week. That should be totally fine. What we're trying to do with fat is make sure that we're typically getting in the essential fatty acids that we need. Want to make sure that we're getting enough fat to just support basic stuff like cell membrane integrity, hormone production, things like that. 
And we also want to facilitate the uh, absorption of fat-soluble vitamins. But the thing about fat-soluble vitamins is, yeah, having some dietary fat helps you absorb them, but we also tend to retain them for a while. Like it, it's not like a, a water-soluble vitamin where it goes in, it goes out, and you kind of have to replenish it on a very, very frequent basis. Fat-soluble vitamins, we can store them in tissues pretty well. And so if, if there's a, you know, maybe a, a little bit less absorption from day to day because your fat intake is super, super, super low, uh, overall, it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. All right, moving on to the next one here. This is from Alexander. This is for both of us. This is one of the ones that we both picked out uh, in the various threads here. And by the way, if you're listening to a Q&A episode, you're saying, hey, I have questions. How do I submit them? Uh, in the Stronger by Science Facebook group, it's called the Stronger by Science Community. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in the Stronger by Science subreddit, uh, when we're about to do a Q&A episode, we just kind of make a little thread and people can post questions in there. So this one from Alexander. Uh, are we planning on competing again? Powerlifting, natural bodybuilding, basketball, paddleboard, completely different sport, natural classic bodybuilding. Um, uh, if so, how are we progressing toward these competitive uh, ambitions? And if not, what's the thought process behind that choice? Uh, I've talked a lot. Why don't you take this one? Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I feel like the operative word in this question is plan uh, and I don't have any any plans, but I'm sure I'm sure I'll find myself competing in something again at some point. Um, the issue for me is I'm a hyper competitive person, and I struggle with competing in a healthy way. Uh, if I if I'm doing something to like if I'm trying to compete in something like I, I'm I'm playing for keeps, like I I want to beat everyone. Um, and so, like, if if I allow myself to get in, like, a really competitive mindset around a particular pursuit I have, um, in instead of, instead of, like, whatever training uh, that, that contributes to that competitive thing, instead of it being something that's fun and good for stress relief and meshes well with the rest of my lifestyle, whatever, um... No, like it, it doesn't work like that. I take it extremely seriously. Um, if I have a bad training session, it's not like, oh, well, I still got to the gym, got some work in. It was fun. It's like, no, I have I have a meet in 10 weeks and I only have like 40 training sessions left and one of them just sucked. So like two and a half percent of the training I have left leading into this meet went poorly. And so now I'm going to be in a bad mood the rest of the day. Um which, you know, that's not how I want my training to be right now. And also, like, uh, yeah, like, a, in terms of mental space, like, th there's a lot of stuff going on in my life right now, a lot of stuff going on with business. And, like, I need some some mental resources to be able to devote to those things. But, no, like, if, if I've registered for a competition, certainly, um, as, as few things as possible penetrate the awareness of my conscious mind until that competition is done like i i'm when i decide i'm going to compete in something i pursue it with an extremely single-minded focus which is completely incompatible with my life right now and, and what i what i need to get out of exercise right now um so yeah like i'm i'm sure i will find myself competing in something again at some point in the future but nothing that that one would term a plan. So that's yeah. 
like I, I I assume once I get under 200, like I'll I'll probably uh find a powerlifting meet to do at 198 and just try to try to hit a big total there. Um, but yeah, like no, nothing nothing imminent. Yeah. So this is kind of interesting though, but there so far to my knowledge, no one has ever broken the two hour marathon barrier, which I find to be both sad and pathetic. Well, with with a with an asterisk, yeah. Have people done it? Uh, yeah, Kip, Kip Choge went like uh, an hour fifty nine forty or something. When did that happen? Because <sighs> the the breaking two project didn't work. Yeah, it was like a year after that. Oh, well. Anyway, someone needs to do it the right way, and I'm going to take that burden upon myself. Um, now I I think I'm kind of like you, but I think. In terms of like, if I decide to to compete, I kind of put that as the absolute top priority. I would be interested to see if I have the capability of competing in a different way. Uh, and I think I do, uh, but I've never tried it. The last time I competed, I was in a very, very different headspace and, you know, really into the tunnel vision on competition. Um, so much like yourself, I don't have any specific plans to compete um, but I do vaguely kind of assume that I will compete in something in the future. Right now, I'm leaning toward marathon uh, as the next thing I would do. And uh, obviously, I ran into some injury-related issues. I And like that was to be expected. I was doing more running to avoid or kind of work around a hip issue. And what do you know? Hips also run. I didn't know that. Uh, so it didn't really work out that way. The, the same injury kind of impaired my ability to train for that. But I will say, make it a lot of progress. Uh, hip is feeling as good as it's felt in a long time. Uh, training harder than I have probably in the last few years, like really hitting the gym hard lately, lifting only, no running at the moment. But uh, I, I think marathon is, is going to be in the plans. And I think it'll be a really fun thing. And I think because I'm a novice at it, I think I'll be able to compete without having to adopt that really, really narrow kind of tunnel vision focus, uh, which would probably be a healthier way to compete uh, compared to compared to the past. Um, actually, funny story about this, though. Uh, let's see. This this episode's going up on the 21st, but today is the 14th, right? So there was a marathon locally like two weeks ago, mm-hmm. maybe a, a week and a half or something. Uh I almost entered it like four days before and I haven't run in a very long time. Uh, no, not four days, seven days before. Mm-hmm. For some reason, something came over me and I was like, I want to do this marathon, dude. But I haven't run in a very long time. So my plan was I was going to wake up one week before it, go for a jog and just say, how'd that feel? And if it felt good, I was going to enter the marathon uh, one week after. If it felt bad, I was going to abstain Ultimately, I woke up and it was rainy and I was like, ah, I don't want to run today. <laughs> so I didn't. So I canceled the experiment. But yeah, something weird came over me and I was like, I want to do this. And then one of the biggest things that convinced me not to is just that it coincided with like a time where like when we're doing the most of our mass riding, I was like, dude, if I'm like bedridden from severe leg soreness, mm-hmm. that's not going to be a good time for me to be dealing with that. So Ultimately, my uh, I probably made the right decision to not dive into that totally untrained, but uh, I think that's going to happen within the next two years, if Sweet. I had to guess. Sounds good. Uh, but I am going to train for it. 
<laughs> I'm not just going to wake up and say, yeah, looks like there's a marathon in town. Uh, all right. A quick one I want to answer here uh, just to provide some utility to the very good listeners at home. Uh, Nicole has a question uh, that I think is going to, um, I think a lot of people have interest in this. So uh, the question is about music as a performance enhancer, curiosity about if uh, it works and if so, why it works. Uh, and, and so the question was asked because I've taught, I've touched, uh, I've touched on some psychology related topics lately. And so Nicole thought maybe I looked into this. I personally haven't looked into this literature too much, but our good friend, Dr. Mike Zordos has looked into it. He's actually reviewed at least two studies in the mass research review, uh, about music and performance. Uh, and by the way, if you subscribe to mass during the black Friday sale, you get access to the entire archive of past articles, videos, audio discussions, etc. So more content than you could ever hope to work your way through. Um, so Zordos has reviewed a couple of these studies. And generally speaking, it seems that when you select music that you enjoy and has the right beats per minute and it has the right vibes, you know, when, when you're able to select a type of music that really helps you get amped up, the natural result of that is heightened arousal. And, and that can lead into greater self-reported levels of motivation. Uh, and it can also potentially shift your attentional, your attentional focus a little bit from internal factors like fatigue and the subjective like, ow, my biceps are burning, I want to stop this set, might shift it more to external factors where you're just kind of focusing more on the good vibes and the music, and it allows you to push through some of that fatigue to some extent. Uh, but there are two important points to consider on this topic. Uh, when people are able to select their own preferred music in research studies, it seems to work better than when they are kind of given a non-preferred type of music. So you want to make sure that you're picking absolute bangers that truly do slap, uh, to use some of your uh, vernacular there. Another thing is that more arousal is not always better. You know, when it comes to this kind of psychological arousal during exercise, it's largely agreed that there is a bit of a U-shaped or an inverted U-shaped pattern where very low arousal uh, is associated with relatively poor performance and way too much arousal uh, in, in some types of tasks can be associated with actually impaired performance. So you want to find yourself in that middle ground where you are amped up enough to really tap into that motivation uh, and that energy and excitement about what you're doing, but you don't want to be so like overwhelmed with, with being like hyper stimulated and hyper aroused that you're not really able to focus on the execution of what you're doing. Uh, anything to add there? Yeah. The, the arousal curve thing, like one, one thing to note about that is it does depend to some extent on the complexity of the task at hand. Yeah. Um, like how how technically demanding it is, how much you have to focus on it. So, you know, if if you wanted to exert as much force as possible during like a maximum isometric knee extension or something, um, I, I think that performance arousal curve is more of just like a straight line. Like the, yeah. the more arousal, the better um, versus something like a snatch or yeah. like a clean and jerk. You probably like it is probably more of an inverted U uh, for that as well. Um, 
So like like anecdotally, a lot of powerlifters report like, oh yeah, like if, if I like overhype myself for a max squat, um, things might get crazy, greater odds of a misgroove, whatever, versus a lot of deadlifters who are just like very grip it and rip it. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna put on rage against the machine, crank it up to fifteen and just yeah, you know, so yeah, there there's some there's some nuance here, but for for the most part, like yeah, you're you're trying to get adequately aroused but not over aroused. So you're cranking up Rage Against the Machine for that big set. Which song are you putting on? Um, I am personally partial to Calm Like a Bomb mm-hmm. for for a PR track. If if I'm going Rage, okay. I've I've mentioned this before, um, but my in. You know, you can't do this for rep max sets because the 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 perfect part of it is so short. But for like just a single one rep max, just give it everything I got uh, type song. Uh, I put on Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel and skip to the crescendo. Um, like, you know, when when it starts like when you need a friend, blah, blah, and then like you're going to get us with, with a copyright. You're, you're so ab- close there. Absolutely not. But yeah, then once it once it swells after that, if you have that on with like really loud, but like pretty high quality speakers, it just it, it gets me just right. And that is that is the best uh, PR song, in, yeah. in my opinion. I tell you what, research aside, research is for nerds. Who cares? Uh, but definitely buy the research review. But research aside, man, there's nothing better than when you walk in to a, a training session and the playlist is just perfect. You know what I mean? When it's just right. And, and sometimes like, sometimes it can be really hard. You're in the gym and you're just like, I cannot get the vibe right today. Like I, you start, you start flipping through totally different genres of music and you just can't find the right fit for the, the workout and the mood that you're in and things like that. It's there, there's really nothing better than when it all lines up and nothing worse than when you're just in a rut and you're like, I I can't, I can't do it. I can't find the right music. It's the worst. No, I, I agree. I agree. All right. Um, I still remember, by the way, uh, the first time I ever benched 300 pounds, I had, uh, I still remember the song, because uh, it was a truly euphoric moment. I mean, 300-pound bench the first time, like, to me, that was a huge deal. Uh, I was listening to Sleepyhead by Passion Pit. Very good one-rep max song. But the reason it was euphoric was because that was back when the original formula, Jack 3D, oh, hell yeah. was all over the place. And so, like, I I was truly experiencing euphoria. That stuff was incredible, man. Uh, w- what a travesty that that's off the market. Absolutely terrible. Yeah. Yes. Um pre-workouts used to be so much cooler back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Now it's just like, oh, here's some caffeine. We'll put a little beta alanine in there. Make your face tingle. It's just not what it used to be, man. Yeah, they 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 really cracked down on like good stimulants because they're they're for like a eh, I'd say probably 5-6 years. All of all of the really smart chemists that worked for the big supplement companies were just like, "Ooh, we found this loophole. If if we essentially make meth, but like <laughs> it, it it was essentially like the designer steroid thing. Like in yeah. in the old like uh in the old steroid legislation, they were they were basically like, yeah, here are the compounds that are that are banned, and here are their exact chemical structures, and like you can't manufacture, use, or sell those. 
so then you know people who like like biochemists were like oh well we can we can tweak this one little thing here and it'll still have the same effects but skirt the legislation and then they like congress realized oh that's like a pretty big loophole so you know they kind of wrote it in a more spirit of the of the law way like yeah you can't use these drugs or anything that's like basically these drugs like you you get it but yeah like like uh stimulants went through a very similar thing where folks were like "Ooh, well we could we could like tweak this a little bit and it's not technically meth um and then yeah those those loopholes got closed as well but they're i mean they're for a while like i i understand why pre-workouts are such like a big part of gym culture which I don't think they were really in like the 80s and like 90s so much. I don't know. Like I, I wasn't no. in gym culture back then. But like that's like looking at old magazines, like old fitness content. You know, I just don't see advertisements for a bunch of pre-workouts. They they didn't seem to be a thing. But then like there in the, the early to mid aughts into into like the early 20 teens as well. Um, I mean, there there were pre-workouts that... Yeah, I, I think we're essentially just speed. And I think there was an entire generation of lifters who, like, low-key just got addicted to pre-workout. <laughs> uh, like, if, if you're the type of person who enjoys uppers, um, you're like, oh, yeah, like, I, I work out because it's healthy. Definitely not just as an excuse to <laughs> to to use more legal meth. Um, <laughs> yeah, 400 milligrams of caffeine and this, like, slightly legal meth. Like, yeah. it's it's for the health, man. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, 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 I strongly believe that that's one of the reasons why, like, the whole concept of pre-workout is just, like, so embedded in gym culture at this point. <laughs> yeah. There's a bunch of, a bunch of uh, purported health enthusiasts who are walking around with the blood pressure, like, 180 over 110. Yeah, you, you got, like, your eye twitching, your, <laughs> your pupils are the size of dinner plates. And it's like, oh, yeah, th- this, is, this is just so I can uh, perform well in my workout to, to yeah, like, like you said, improve my health. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, man, those, those were the days. And that's the thing. People are going to, especially younger folks, are going to think that you're being hyperbolic when you say, like, that, like, structurally they were awfully close to meth. But, like, I literally failed an employment uh, drug test for methamphetamine yeah. because I was taking those, uh, those pre-workouts. And like, fortunately, it was such a common thing at the time that we got it sorted out and they just sent it to a different lab with more sophisticated testing. But like, no, you, it's not just like, oh, there's a possibility you could have a false positive. Like it happened uh, to me and many others. But yeah, it was very, very similar. This is I, I don't think these two things are related except for like the temporal relation. But I mean, the the meth crisis in the u.s did really seem to pick up once they took all of the good stuff out of the pre-workouts like i i wonder i wonder if it's kind of like once they made uh you you know like when they made uh like oxys harder to get your hands on and like harder to use recreationally that's when a bunch of people started using heroin i kind of wonder if if a similar thing happened for some people once the once the pre-workouts became less cool I have absolutely no idea. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't. I, I certainly don't think it's a primary contributor, but yeah, who's to say? Pro- prob- probably, probably unrelated. I, I would assume. I, I would assume as well. Uh, let's move on. Let's here. move on. Yeah, we've got a question from Michael about 
TRT or testosterone replacement therapy. Uh, and the question is, what is the potential impact of TRT on nutrition and training recommendations, particularly for someone with a physique-oriented goal? Uh, first of all, TRT is a medical intervention, and therefore, any ambitions or plans related to TRT, you should be discussing with a qualified healthcare professional. Uh, in terms of kind of just from a... Uh, uh, educational perspective, um, looking at, you know, broadly, what, what would one anticipate? Um, I'm obviously going to defer to Greg for training stuff, but for nutrition, uh, if you're going from a position where you have clinically low testosterone, say your testosterone is like 200, uh, you know, was it deciliters? It, it's, uh, it's nanograms, nanograms per, per deciliter. deciliter yeah. yeah. So let's say your testosterone is at like 200 nanograms per deciliter. And uh, let's say you ramp it all the way up to 900 via medically supervised TRT. In that situation, your your hypertrophy potential is going to be heightened. Uh, th that is a physiologically meaningful change in your testosterone level. And what that means is you might be able to accommodate some modest increases in protein and calorie intake if we consider that all other variables are held constant. This is, I want to acknowledge, very speculative. Um, I'm just kind of leaning on intuition here because I know that there's basically two schools of thought here. One school of thought is, you know, you, you can actually get away with less protein because you have this huge, robust increase in the stimulus for muscle protein synthesis. That 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 The kind of line of thinking is, therefore... You don't need to force your way to muscle growth through really high protein intakes. I know that some people will take that perspective. I don't find that to be particularly compelling personally. Um, I think the more likely scenario is that through the uh, increased stimulus for muscle protein synthesis through the testosterone replacement, I think it's very likely that you are now in a position to more effectively utilize slightly higher protein intakes. Uh, and then, of course, there's an additional energy cost of hypertrophy. So theoretically, a little bump in calories as well. Uh, I, I think it basically just elevates the ceiling of on a per unit time basis, how many new pro muscle proteins can you synthesize? Uh, so, of course, there's going to be a stimulus from training, a stimulus from testosterone, but then ultimately you need the raw materials around there. You need to have the dietary protein coming in for the essential amino acids that are actually going to be put together to, to make these new muscle proteins. So my intuition, I, I know there's two different schools of thought. I can't say definitively which one is scientifically correct, but I lean more on the, uh, like I've heard some people who actually say like you should reduce your protein intake when you get on TRT because you don't need the protein anymore. I find that to be counterintuitive, and I would say you'd probably, I would expect, either leave your protein similar similar, or potentially ramp it up just a little bit to accommodate the increase in how much protein synthesis will really be happening per unit time. Um, yeah, I, I think that's probably probably my two cents on it. What do you think about that logic? Uh, yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. Oh, um, I was, I was going to say, yeah, the, the reason I say that is because... Um, I've been digging into literature comparing high versus low protein uh, targets recently, mm -hmm. and it seems as if the the kind of more pronounced, bigger impacts of high versus low protein 
And a lot of the studies I'm looking at, it seems to be kind of more more amplified or more magnified, more, uh, you know, kind of a larger difference between high and low in studies where people are relatively untrained at baseline. And so they have the capacity to really pack on more muscle in a short period of time. And some of the studies with people that are more muscular at baseline and kind of higher training status, you're not really seeing as large a magnitude of effect there. Um, so that, that's kind of my two cents. Yeah, that, that makes sense for, for those studies though, like, are, are we talking like a different absolute magnitude or of, of effect or a different relative magnitude of effect? Different relative, like, like okay. the impact of having high, ver- not just like more kilograms of fat free mass yeah, gain, yeah. but like the magnitude of how much better off with, were you with high versus low? I, I gotcha. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. On, on the, on the training side of things, um, I, I, I think it's pretty similar, um, so, like, I, I think presumably you can probably handle a bit more training volume, probably recover a little bit better. The reason I say probably is I don't think there's a ton of research on that. Um, and I'll readily admit that's that's just not an area of research I follow super closely. Um, my general perspective on, on, on TRT, as it would be for just about any other medication, is that, like, if you're if you're taking a drug for health benefits, like you're taking the drug for health benefits and w- whatever the impact on training is is whatever the impact on training is. Um and, and I also sort of think that if you have a generally smart well-designed training program that uses some sort of feedback mechanism to regulate loads, regulate volume, um you know, maybe you're using RPEs, maybe you're using reps in reserve. Um, maybe it is just more of a subjective thing. Like, Hey, like if I still feel good after three sets, I'll do a fourth, whatever. Like unless you're, unless you're just like rigidly sticking and adhering to a completely rigid training program where you have all of the weights, all of the sets, uh, all of the reps laid out weeks in advance with no ability to deviate from it. Um, you know, as long as there's some flexibility built in there, uh, if TRT has a positive effect on how much training you can handle or how quickly you adapt to it, those uh, those built-in methods for like flex- flexibly altering your training program should just take care of it. Um, so I, I probably wouldn't go out of my way to prospectively make huge program adjustments knowing oh i'm going to start trt next week or whatever um but yeah i i mean i i I assume just whatever you're doing that's currently working it'll probably just make it work a little bit better yeah and and again uh one thing i i want to mention before we move on is my answer is pretty speculative like i i try to make sure that i tag very clearly my speculation versus like here is a rock solid evidence-based answer so uh if if people want to jump in the comments and yell at me uh i accept that responsibility and i will take whatever punishment is coming as the first and only fitness podcast with a steadfast commitment to traditional family values we know that protecting families is important Right you are, Eric, but I will note there are some things that are even more important than protecting traditional family values and the moral fabric of our society. That's right, Greg. 
It's important to protect families, but it's even more important to protect corporate entities. That's why I joined the advisory board for the Sports Nutrition Association, along with trusted fitness pros like Danny Lennon and distrusted arch nemeses like Eric Helms. The Sports Nutrition Association is the home of sports nutrition. They are dedicated to ensuring the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession, and they offer a unique pathway to robust insurance coverage for your sports nutrition business. Simply put, it's the best way to protect the corporate entities that are closest to your heart. And I should note, if you're an individual sole proprietor uh, providing sports nutrition services and not a corporate entity, the Sports Nutrition Association can help you out as well. That is correct. All insurance plans are handled individually on a case-by-case basis, regardless of how your sports nutrition business is structured. But even if you don't want insurance coverage, SNA membership comes with a bunch of other perks and advantages. The Sports Nutrition Association is the only global professional sports body that has a defined standard for sports nutrition scope of practice for its members. This ensures that members maintain high standards in their practice so that the public can always trust in the quality associated with the services of an accredited sports nutritionist through the Sports Nutrition Association. If you already meet their minimum education requirements, you can become an accredited sports nutritionist today. Uh, If you don't meet those education requirements yet, you can enroll in the certificate program in Applied Sports Nutrition. That allows you to become a provisionally accredited member upon completion. To learn more about the Sports Nutrition Association, head over to www.sportsnutritionassociation.com today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sports Nutrition Association and Stronger by Science LLC sincerely appreciates their support. All right, do you have any uh, do you have a question that you want to throw in the mix here? Oh, I'm I'm good to just keep keep rolling in the order of the outline. Cool. Uh well, I did skip over one, so let me get to that one. Right. Um this is just an accountability exercise basically. Michael, I think that's how to pronounce it. Um Michael asks if I've thought about writing a book or article or something like that about statistics and methodology and research. I'm not sure who this is directed to, um, but I'll answer it because... I mean, I hope it's directed to you. You know <laughs> you know way more about stats than I do. Yeah, I, I think this was right after I'd answered a couple of... I think it was a couple of his questions about statistics for meta-analysis, so I, I think it was uh, directed to me. But um, I kind of... like. I've made a lot of progress toward that type of project, uh, really leaned into it and then tabled it for a while. And the the problem is I've talked to people who write books relatively frequently, and it's something that I'm going to have to get over. But apparently it's a common thing that sometimes you just can't put it down and say, like, this is done. Like, it, it has covered the things it ought to cover let it go and set it free out into the world. I can't quite get to that point with it because I keep learning new things and it's really hard to restrict the scope of that type of thing because you're like, I mean, statistics has been humming along, you know, really moving for, yeah, it's been picking up a lot over the last hundred years. And even in the last like 30, there's been a lot of movement and, and things are picking up and, People are even picking up old ideas that were discarded like a hundred years ago and saying, oh, actually, we should have gone that way instead. Yeah, there there was there was a lot of work back in the day where these 
very big brain statisticians would do a bunch of math and be like, hey, we hit on this method that should do a much better job than what we currently do of analyzing this particular problem, but guess what? Computers don't exist, and it would take about four months to work through a problem by hand, so let's just not uh, worry about this too much. And now people are, are looking back through old papers and being like, hey, we have computers now, and some of this old shit was good, and we just forgot about it because no one could could do it at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. There were so many instances where theory outpaced computation uh, in a way that was just kind of a, a dead end because who could have who could have fathomed that personal computing would get to the point where it is? Um, but yeah, so anyway, the the short version is it's it's difficult to say like what is the scope of this project? What statistical procedures need to be talked about in depth? What uh, methodological considerations need to be talked about in depth? Uh, because you know it's it's quite audacious to say, hey, I wrote a book about all research. If you read it, you'll be adequately prepared to tackle all of it. So good luck. Um, yeah, it, it's really tough, but I do expect at some point in my career I will publish a large thing. That involves a lot of detail about statistics and methodology. All right, um, Greg, th we're now into your your area of the um, of the outline. But you know what? Before we do that, there's two kind of like off-topic questions mm -hmm. um, that are you know kind of like uh, I guess they're semi-on topic, but the type of thing that we might answer in. Uh, in like a fireside chat mm -hmm. why don't we do one of those and then we'll end this episode and then we will uh pick back up next week with more q a that sounds good to me awesome so this one is is kind of a big can of worms here um we got a question from edward and the question is there's a lot of faulty science out there for sure but what is some questionable or outright incorrect advice or insights that industry experts or researchers still circulate. Uh, so looking at uh, industry experts and researchers, are there any pieces of advice floating around these days that seem to be either unreliable, speculative, or downright just incorrect? So my short answer to this question is that I think this is getting worse and not better. Uh, maybe I'm falling victim to recency bias. That That's very, very possible. But uh, I think some of the current stuff in this vein is just inherently way more deleterious than it used to be. Um, because like I, I remember when I was first kind of tapping into the fitness industry and saying, hey, what's the chatter around here? And like, it would be stuff, like the stuff that comes to mind for me is like, hey, you should eat more frequently to boost your metabolism. Mm -hmm. Does that matter? No. Is it harmful? No, it's just annoying. It's like, yeah, you, you don't actually need to eat eight times a day. You could just have like three or four meals a day and you're going to be just fine. So like that stuff was going around. Who's it harming? It's inconvenient at, at worst, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing w that was going around when I was getting into it was like, hey, you need to, you really need to hammer carbs post-workout because like GLUT4 receptors, they're translocated. You're, you know, you you just did three sets of 10, man. You're glycogen depleted. <laughs> you need to really carb up. 
And not only that, you need to have this very special type of carbohydrate. That stuff was so overblown for the general fitness population. Uh, was it necessary? No. But again, was it harmful? Like, dude, you, you had some maltodextrin after your workout. Big deal. Not not a big deal. But like nowadays, it's like, hey, I know your car- your cardiologist is worried about your high LDL, but like, dude, trust me, don't take your medicine. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a fundamentally different type of thing going around. Uh, and is that the consensus among industry experts or researchers? No. But are there researchers and industry experts saying it? There are. Yeah. Like, there are now people who are going back and saying, like, ignore your cardiologist's recommendations. Uh, the, the person who's literally treating you with your entire medical history in, your, in their chart. Uh, there's people saying, hey, never eat fiber. Why? Like, th- that's a, a deleterious thing to recommend to people based on all the evidence we could lean on. Uh, you got people talking about, like, dude, uh, don't worry about sun-related, like, skin damage. Don't worry about massive sunburns as long as you're not eating seed oils. Like, this is fundamentally dangerous information. I, I mean, if if we're talking, like, eh, not as many researchers, but, like, industry experts, I mean, there's a... There's a pretty big contingent of just like full on anti vaxxers in the in yeah. the fitness industry now, and like, yeah, that's that's fucking dangerous. Yeah, I mean, so to me, uh, it it is getting a lot worse rather than getting better. Like the idea, like, oh, we have the internet now, we can robustly fact check things on the fly, and we're going to ultimately triangulate toward only the best ideas. Let that go. <laughs> that is not happening at all. Um, and like right now there's like people with kind of that take more of like a biohackery approach and people that take like a homeopathy approach, which uh, a, a term I saw the other day was bromeopathy, oh, hell which yeah. is like the convergence between like homeopathy and like ultra masculinity. Um, and there's people that are taking these approaches that, are developing really, really big followings with tremendous amounts of reach. I mean, far more than we could ever hope to have. And uh, ultimately, I understand why that resonates. Like, there, there are a lot of people right now who have huge followings who are like, trust me, I'm, I'm an expert. I lean on the science. And the stuff that they're putting out is fully unscientific in nature. Uh, and in some cases, just flatly incorrect. But I, I understand why it resonates. Like, I understand why those followings are so big. And it's because it's, um, it is superficially on the surface embracing science, but without all the difficult, messy stuff that makes science boring and, and kind of tedious to work through. Like, so it's taking, um, really concise narratives and really consist internally consistent narratives at the expense of nuance. So like you, you talked about this, I think the last time we recorded where you're putting together an Instagram post and you're like, there's about six caveats that I ought to put in here. And we do. And it kills the reach of the post. It it kills the reach and it makes the comments so much more annoying. Yeah. And so it's, (laughs) you're just signing up for punishment when you do that. You're like, I could just kind of commit myself to an internally consistent viewpoint 
build that narrative and keep going back to that well. And when new research comes along to support it, boom, throw it in the pile. When new research comes along that says, hey, you should probably add a caveat or add some nuance to that narrative, throw it out. Not interested whatsoever. Um, and so, yeah, th these narratives that seem scientific on the surface, they are easier to build, easier to digest, easier to circulate, but ultimately they lose a lot of the nuance that makes the evidence-based part of the argument actually based on the evidence. Like, mm -hmm. like you start to separate from the evidence via oversimplification in a way that really blurs that line between is this still actually evidence-based when yeah. it lacks nuance to this degree um and you know it it kind of makes people feel good when, when they see these narratives because they're like dude no i'm not, not not following you know some random jackass on twitter i'm not just listening to the biggest person in the gym i am listening to a person who promises me that this is science Yep. But the nice thing is it's so simple and straightforward and concise and streamlined and internally consistent. And there are never any complicating factors. That should make you feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. When when you are hearing about science and it feels so smooth and it goes down easy, you're probably deviating pretty hard from the science at that point. Like that should be kind of a, a default red flag that kind of sets off your your bs detector now there are some instances where science does end up being pretty intuitive so i'm not saying it's uh you know 100 percent of the time you're in a bad spot but man when people present things that that are just too internally consistent and smooth and there's never caveats and there's never oh by the way it doesn't apply here and it doesn't apply there you got to be careful about that stuff so a couple things that come to mind for me, uh, examples right now of things that have actually. Can can I just add one more thing in, in sure, terms of yeah. in terms of like broader dynamics for why that stuff co comes across like seeming so appealing to so many people? Yeah. So I've been. Um, uh, so I, I was. Uh, I, I took, I took some poli sci classes in undergrad, and I've I've been uh, doing some more reading about just kind of like general media literacy and like dynamics that um like like people who want to use the media to their own end can use to like push a particular message and one of the things that comes up in uh in like conversation about those things and like in in research about some of those things is the idea of uh controlling a message and and uh controlling the messaging on an issue and a lot of that just comes down to um, consistently messaging about a particular issue. So, like, if, like, like, let's say that there's uh, some idea, like, in, like, I, I don't want to get too specific on this to make it like too controversial or whatever. But like, if there's that's why we don't have any reach. Uh, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but yeah, if, if there's some sort of controversial topic, and um, like let's say that there's like very broad scientific consensus that all leans in one direction to the point where like it's essentially settled like you know nothing in science is ever completely fully settled but you know like there's there's overwhelming consensus uh leading in one particular like like leaning in one particular way um 
And like, you know, maybe there was like a pretty big public messaging campaign around whatever topic that was uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, like whenever it was pretty much figured out. And then, uh, you know, then then the experts are essentially like, well, okay, we've got this out there now. We can kind of rest on our laurels. Um, You know, we don't want we don't need to be running ads on TV, uh, you know, every single week, like during during NFL games or whatever to like convince people of of this like public health thing anymore. Like we've we've done it. It's good. Um, So then essentially they're seeding seeding message control to whoever wants to take up the mantle and talk about that topic all the time. Yeah. Yeah. so, like, uh, I, I do think general nutrition stuff is a pretty good example of this where, like, you know, like, le- legitimate health professionals might say, oh, like, try to watch your calorie intake, eat uh, five five servings of fruit and vegetables per day, and uh, limit processed meat intake, and, like, ah, you're, you're probably pretty good. And let's make, l- like, let's try to make sure everyone in the general population hears that message at least like once every six months or so. So it kind of, kind of stays in there. But then, you know, let's say there's a carnivore influencer on Instagram who every single fucking day is going to post a new post and like eight new stories about how, oh, actually all of those people are full of shit. And if you want like the best health, uh, just eat raw beef for every meal every day. Um, at that point, if someone follows them, that person is controlling that issue. You know, like the, the they're they're not going to get consistent pushback from the legitimate authorities in the area, and even like I mean, even uh, like like other industry folks who broadly disagree with them, like dude, like I I would say this is an anti carnivore podcast. Uh, but like we don't talk about it on every episode, um, and certainly, you know, I'm I'm not posting anti-carnivore stuff on my Instagram TL every single day. I don't think I ever have. I'm not posting about it in my stories every single day. I never have. I don't think I ever have. Yeah, yeah. and so you know, essentially, even even the people giving pushback, the pushback is not as consistent as the messaging itself. Um, and so yeah, like it, th- that essentially things become things start feeling more and more inherently true the more times you encounter them like that's that that's propaganda 101 essentially yeah. and and i don't think that people pushing sketchy like health and fitness claims view themselves as propagandists but like that's that's the playbook they're benefiting from essentially and so like yeah, if you wind up following some of those folks and they keep they stay on message, they have good message discipline and they talk about the same things in the same way day after day, week after week, and you encounter that content. Each time you encounter it, uh it either either it turns you off initially and you're just like no and then every time you see it it's just more and more ridiculous and you're like nah, that's silly. But if it's like if it's like a little bit intuitively appealing the first time, each time you encounter that message, it is just like more and more appealing. You've seen it more. It just, it feels less fringe and more just like a normal part of the information ecosystem you're in because it is more a normal part of the information ecosystem you're in because you're encountering it all the time because they're posting about it all the time and there's not that, that consistent pushback. So yeah, like there's, um, 
it, it makes it very understandable that that folks are uh sucked in by some of that stuff because uh yeah the the folks pushing those message messages i think largely unintentionally are just um uh using the toolkit of propagandists which unfortunately is uh it works really well it's very effective yeah i would push back against one thing there uh you mentioned that this is an anti-carnivore podcast um I I don't view it that way. And I, I think you're kind of oversimplifying the language. Like like you said, I mean, we don't go out of our way to dunk on the carnivore diet frequently, but we do vocalize uh, a strong opposing perspective about, you know, what is the kind of healthiest or best health-promoting dietary pattern. Uh, and the reason I bring up that distinction is because I... I am increasingly, as I get older and age at a precipitous rate, more interested in being helpful than correct. And I don't want to put out content that seems maliciously or mockingly anti-carnivore. Perhaps I've slipped up in the past. I'm not certain. I don't think I've put out too much of that. But what I would prefer to do is extend an olive branch and just say, hey, listen, you're, you're liking the carnivore diet. And presumably that's for some number of reasons, right? So maybe, maybe you do have some pretty nasty food allergies or other types of food related uh, pathologies or sensitivities. And this is just one form of extreme elimination diet that acutely has uh, put some of those symptoms into remission. Mm-hmm. That uh, I, I understand that. Um, and that's, uh, it's good that the elimination element of that diet has been acutely helpful, but elimination diets in the clinical sense are not long-term solutions. It's, it's the first step. And then you start reintroducing foods from there to see what's going to be a workable, normal dietary pattern for us to use long-term, right? Mm So I, I, I'm, what I'm interested in doing moving forward with carnivore type stuff is just meeting halfway and saying, Hey, there, there might be a good reason that you have gravitated toward this, this diet. Maybe you've really struggled with satiety in the past. And this is a diet that really helps you better than any other diet you've tried. Keep your calorie intake lower. Um, or, you know, maybe, you know, you have struggled, you know, with hyperpalatable foods and whenever you eat them, it kind of derails your dietary progress. So this, you know, I'm been, I've been trying to embrace the fact that people who gravitate it and fall in love with it, there may be an underlying reason that has some, some real legitimacy there. But then the question is, well, where do we go from here? Like, do we eat just raw beef for the rest of our life? I would argue there's probably a better way, right? Yeah. And so what I'm interested in doing moving forward in a broader sense is saying, okay, let's let's meet halfway. You like carnivore right now? What if we did kind of like a beet heavy a beet heavy, a beef heavy approach to keto, right? Boom, first step. Get some fibrous vegetables in the mix. They're fine. Right? And then you say, okay, well, we're we're in this like kind of beet heavy beef, I keep saying beet, uh dissertation research coming back. We're in this kind of beef focused keto diet that has some vegetables mixed in. Um Maybe we open up and say, what are some different protein and fat sources that can round this out a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And then we say, okay, now we're on a pretty standard ketogenic diet. We 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 started checking some of those boxes that I mentioned a couple episodes ago and kind of, you know, broad strokes, what makes a healthy dietary pattern. 
what if we bumped from this this now pretty conventional keto approach into meet me halfway, let's go paleo, yeah. right? I, what I'd be interested in is trying to kind of offer a ramp back into the nutritional mainstream that just opens up a slightly more health compatible dietary pattern for people in that situation. So that was a long detour, but but that's where I'm at with the carnivore diet since we since we ended up there. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I, I was just using carnivore as an example. Like yeah. I, I'm more more just talking about the general dynamic of when like messaging about a particular topic outweighs counter messaging like ten to one or a hundred to one. And it's a great and, example and, of that. And and for a lot of those like like niche things that either don't have much evidence supporting them or are like pretty contradicted by the evidence in most contexts. Um, yeah, like the, the people, the people pushing them forward, pushing those ideas forward, push those ideas forward with, with a level of frequency and regularity that is, that far exceeds uh, the counter messaging, like against those things. And so yeah. like th- that, that does like that, that is just like a, a media dynamic that makes those ideas become more appealing to people who initially found a little appeal in them in the first place. Yeah. And, and another example is with, with seed oil alarmists. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I've seen a number of people who are like, so you're, you're this, uh, you know, regular eater of seed oils. If your argument is as compe- compelling as mine, how come you haven't matched my content one for one? And it's like, cause I can't make my whole life be about seed oils being nice (laughs) like like you have literally dedicated the entirety of your personality to saying that seed oils are harmful and i cannot match that because there's no will and i'd have to like stop doing literally everything else i do yeah Uh, and it's another example where it's like i mean i could make a very very strong argument against that but i i i can't force myself to do that on a daily basis yeah you're, you're gonna make it once or twice uh I, I mean, I, I think this is um, th- this could be a weakness in our general content approach where what we like to do is find a topic and say, hey, I'm going to write a very long, very thorough piece on this one topic to to basically cover it. And then if questions come up, eh, just, just link it back to this single comprehensive resource, um, which like I think is a good way to go about it. But ultimately... Ultimately, I do think it probably diminishes our perceived expertise on those topics. Because, um, yeah, like people people will just naturally be perceived as more of an expert on the topics they talk about all the time. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, like it's I don't know. It's it's weird. It's weird. I, I do think I do think social media is making it more difficult to be a generalist. Like, I, I think that a lot of the dynamics in play really strongly incentivize picking one topic that you really just hit your wagon to and talk about all the time. Um, which I don't know, probably isn't ideal. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, we've kind of covered why these types of arguments, uh, are so appealing. And one thing that, that I should probably mention as well is the fact that a lot of these arguments in the fitness space just promote a false sense of self-efficacy. So they basically say, here is a thing that you can manipulate very effectively and really change your health and wellness or fitness level. And uh, in a lot of cases, some of these like science adjacent or kind of like pseudoscientific claims really lean into that because like, like all the other stuff we mentioned, 
it just feels good when someone says, here is a thing you can do right now that is going to help you take control of your health and wellness. That feels good. And the reality is if we had that many kind of silver bullets sitting around, uh, the science would look a lot different, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we don't have these paradigm shifting interventions every other day in science. Yeah. Uh, so a good example of that is um, we've talked about a couple examples already of things that are floating around. Um, uh, but I, I, I sat down in the sauna the other day. I mentioned that I, I really like sauna bathing on the show. And uh, somebody was already in the sauna and really, really nice person. Uh, you know, and, and so like, I didn't like say anything. I didn't take the wind out of his sails. I was just really polite and friendly. But like, as, as I sat down, he just kind of announces to the room, like, Hey, good on us. Uh, we just lowered our risk of dying by 27%. That's, that's a large effect. Yeah. And, uh, and like, I know the research he's referring to. I know the statistical model he's referring to from that paper. I know the, the more nuanced interpretation, which guess what doesn't say that if you just sit down in that room on a Tuesday, you are now 20%, you know, whatever percentage less likely to die. I, I knew all those things in my head. Um, but I just was like, oh, wow, that's that's awesome. Cool. Because like it doesn't when someone is doing things that are neutral to positive for their health and they feel really positive about them, there is nothing beneficial about taking the wind out of their sails. Uh, and yeah, so I just wasn't interested in that. But but you can see how these messages that seem scientific, you're like, dude, this is from like a paper in Finland and they do good science in Finland. And uh, yeah, 27 percent. And you know, you can see how that that sense of self-efficacy is a really powerful thing, even if it's oversimplified to the point of no longer being true. Yeah. Uh, so areas where we see this, like, man, I did a study on cold exposure during my PhD. People have been going crazy with cold, cold exposure lately with pseudoscientific claims that seem sciencey, and they're just way overblown. Same thing, like I said, with sauna. Um, even just like, I mean, I've seen people talking about like, Man, we know from science on mice that melatonin plummets your testosterone levels. But we know from science on humans it doesn't. Like that's been looked at. Yeah. Uh it just doesn't. But you'll still see on these like science channels, dude, stay away from melatonin, your testosterone's gonna plummet. That's simply not true. Mm-hmm. Same thing we've talked about on the show, cooling gloves being super ergogenic. <laughs> They're not. Like they simply are not. That's a that's a different context though. It is, but uh. <laughs> I mean, but it, it's, it's been popularized on big channels that purport to say we do science here. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I think it falls under the umbrella. Yeah. I, I, with, with that one though, like you, you very much could point to a study like a, what appears on the surface to be a high quality longitudinal human intervention Taking the measurements you'd want to see pre and post. Guess what? The cooling glove looked incredible. Uh, but with with the caveat being no one has really replicated those results. Um, and uh, maybe maybe there were some conflicts of interest uh, in that particular paper. But but yeah, like I, I I'm 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 more I'm more sympathetic to that one because like there there is a paper that you could point to where like the um 
like the the mo the most intuitive and fairest explanation of that paper is that cooling gloves are are incredible. Yeah, I, I guess I, I'm a little bit less charitable about uh, for things that have been. I mean, it's it's not the only study to look at palm cooling. I do. Like you, you you went through a number of related studies, right? Yeah. So so that the single paper I believe had either three or four trials detailed uh, in the paper, and there were I believe two acute studies and two longitudinal studies uh, in like like detailed in that single paper. Um, and the acute studies also reported larger magnitudes of effects than other acute studies performed with cooling gloves. I don't think there are other longitudinal studies on like the the effects of of using a cooling glove during training over time. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm 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 sympathetic to someone who sees that and is like, well, this this is what the longitudinal data says, and there's not much to contradict it. Um, but I I am still uh, intensely skeptical of the results reported in that study. You know, that's an unintentional but very good segue. Uh, because the next point I wanted to make here is that this stuff isn't just in the like industry world and the social media world, but I mentioned that, you know, faulty claims and, and kind of just low quality content is it's getting worse, not better. That also, in my opinion, applies to the published scientific research. Um, you know, there are still people pushing some really weird theories in the published literature and uh, we actually, there was a, a quote uh, by Stu Phillips within the, the Mass Facebook group. Uh, he said that the ratio of BS to evidence-based science has increased dramatically in the last decade, and now there are no barriers to publishing anything. Every piece of data will find a home. And I thought that that was a really insightful observation because with the proliferate, I mean, the journals are just popping up like crazy. They're everywhere. There are a lot of journals out there that will gladly accept $1,000 to publish whatever you'd like. Mm -hmm. um, at the very same time that the, the government put out their list of like the, the dirty dozen 12, influencer put it, 12 influencers doing the most harm with misinformation, one of them was publishing a paper on those topics within a journal was that the mercola vitamin d and covid paper yeah yeah within a journal that is i mean we cover it in mass all the time it's it's a real journal yeah. it's a real journal the impact factor is high and uh yeah it's kind of one of those things about the dynamics of publishing is that uh there are enough journals out there we've talked how you know it's kind of like uh you just rinse and repeat, right? So you send a paper out to a journal. Uh, the the reviewers say, no, this is low quality work. It's not rigorous. We cannot accept it. You say, okay, I'll go somewhere else. And yeah. you try again and again and again and again and again. And then ultimately, if you really just want a link to say, hey, my thoughts are actually published science that counts, eventually you can find a journal that's just completely predatory in nature and just say i'm just going to give you 300 bucks just publish this yeah give me a doi and a hyperlink so i can send it out so the dynamics of publishing and then you can launder it by if you want to talk about it again now it's no longer a novel and fringe idea in the literature it's it's been published before and so now you can cite that prior paper and it looks like you're building upon other work 
in on like a, a well-established topic uh and especially with blinded peer review like there's no reason for the reviewers to know you're just citing to your own shit that you publish in a predatory journal because no one else could take it yeah and you know a lot of people will hear that and they'll say like, yeah, I'm sure there's some bad actors out there who are just, you know, they, they have an idea that they're really driven to get out to the world and, and they want to uh, maliciously have it masquerading as science. So they do this, but like, it's not even that. So like I, I was at a conference, like a reputable conference uh, put on by a reputable organization involved in science and academics and there was a presentation about how to write or publish. And this is an interesting thing because like uh, they, they basically said, listen, every set of data has a home. Uh, some of those homes are huts and some are mansions. Uh, but basically what they're saying is like, whatever you're trying to publish, you can find a journal. And this wasn't saying like, oh my God, I'm lamenting the state of the literature. This is such a bad thing. This was career advice. Keep trying. Get yeah. it somewhere yeah. for your career, right? And so like, it, it was really interesting because when I heard that statement, it was kind of framed as like, hey, your career is going to be just fine because whatever you're working on, you will be able to get it published if you try hard enough. And my initial response was like, I am hearing that in a very different light. Like, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Like, uh yeah, it, it kind of blurs the line between what is the purpose of doing this research? Is it to get it published for career-related purposes? Or is it because this is a meaningful finding that ought to be shared with the world because of its importance? Um, and, you know, I, I've even been through some academic talks where people talk strategically about, you know, in the peer review process, you submit a paper, the reviewers make comments, they send it back. I've been through academic talks where they talk specifically about how to appease reviewers and kind of leverage psychology and logistics to make it such that they are going to review your revision much more favorably. Uh, which again is it's kind of turning it into a bit of a game rather than, well, the whole purpose here is to make sure that we're, you know, vetting these ideas to to make certain that they are robust and impactful and important. Um, yeah, there, there's these weird kind of because of the way the incentives are aligned. It's like there's a difference between like disseminating important information and getting a thing published. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think whether you're looking at the stuff on Instagram and Twitter or you're looking at the stuff in peer reviewed journals, like I said, I, I just think this idea of kind of faulty ideas floating around and getting popularized is, like I said, probably getting worse rather than better. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. Um, so I just just to add uh, a little bit to that, I I think that there is a whole a whole genre, a whole world of information that gets disseminated both by like influencers on social media and in published research that just, just like broadly follows the theme of assuming and extrapolating uh, long longitudinal outcomes from acute measures that have not been validated for uh, uh, predicting longitudinal outcomes. So uh, is one thing we've mentioned on this episode already is um, people assuming that that EMG data directly tells you about hypertrophy, that if 
you do two exercises and one of them leads to higher mean or peak EMG readings for the target muscle, uh, that exercise will necessarily lead to more hypertrophy over time. And the thing is, that may or may not be true, and we don't know because it's never been studied. Um, to, to establish that, you would need at least a study where, um, you know, you, you pick two exercises that, at least on the surface, seem like they should have, like, similar hypertrophic effects. Um, you get some EMG data at baseline, see which one does lead to higher mean or peak EMG readings. Uh, and then you do a, a longitudinal study, like over eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, whatever. Look to see, like, do these two exercises lead to differences in hypertrophy? And if so, uh, did the one that, that led to larger EMG readings lead to more hypertrophy? Um, like, that that's the type of study you would need to do. And, and that would just be step one, um, because, you know, it could be that there's some characteristic of the exercise that makes it more effective for hypertrophy that also makes it more, like, that also leads to a larger EMG reading. Um, but, you know, that, that may not necessarily be a generalizable thing. Like, it, it could just be, like, a length-dependent thing. Maybe you get, like, a higher EMG reading, uh, if a muscle is in a lengthened state, but like, yeah, maybe the EMG isn't that important. Maybe it is just training the muscle in a lengthened state. So then you would need to probe that, that, uh, concept a little bit more. Like let's try another set of exercises that, uh, screens out potential confounders in that first set. So like you, you would probably need, uh, at least like four or five, uh, like longitudinal validation studies on this idea to see is this a valid proxy measure for predicting longitudinal outcomes? And like, we don't even have one like that. That research just doesn't exist yet. Um, but there's a lot of social media content. That's just like either, Hey, here's this study that looked at EMG and I'm going to make longitudinal inferences from this study or much more infuriatingly. Hey, I bought an EMG unit and I did uh, like four triceps exercises uh, and, and monitored my EMG during all three of the, or all four of those exercises. And like, this was the one that for me led to higher, led to the highest triceps EMG. And therefore all of you should be doing this. Like that's, that's even a step lower. Um, but yeah, like that, that stuff, uh, gets bandied about on social media all the time. And there, there are still plenty of scientific studies where like, I, I like, like one, <laughs> one of the dynamics in research is like, you're supposed to kind of like sell the reviewers and then the readers on like why your research is important. Um, and I mean, for, for EMG studies, uh, you know, the, the honest answer for, for a lot of them, like there, there are certainly like disease states and like neuromuscular stuff where EMG is very important, but like in, in terms of, Hey, we're going to recruit healthy young people and just have them do like six hamstrings exercises and measure EMG. Um, like, the actual import of that study is just, hey, now we know the EMG values for these six exercises, which, what can you do with that? I don't know. So when you're trying to sell it, you just kind of like imply, ah, and we suspect that this will uh, uh, be suggestive of like hypertrophy down the line or whatever. So like th that is an idea that is still like pretty popular in research. And I think that's one of the reasons why people pick it up and, and run with it on social media. Um, but yeah, th that's an example of taking an acute proxy measure and assuming that it's going to generalize to longitudinal results. But there, there's a lot of 
uh, there are a lot of examples in this general theme. So, uh, like, like recovery modalities, for instance, like if, uh, if something helps you recover in 48 hours from a training session versus 72 hours, um, you know, the, the research will often say like, Hey, this improved recovery. And so like, ah, people will be able to train more, train harder, get better results. Uh, and that's often how it's presented, uh, you know, in, in industry as well. And honestly, I've probably done that as well. Um, or at least not, uh, presented stuff like that with as much caution as I probably should. But I mean, again, ultimately we don't know. Um, and it, it probably depends on like the mechanism of action as well. Like you can't necessarily assume that just because something leads to slightly faster recovery, it's necessarily going to lead to better gains. Um, so like, for example, uh, you know, uh, we, we talked about high doses of NSAIDs um, last episode, I believe. We've talked about uh, uh, ice bathing and the negative effects that can have on hypertrophy. Both of those things do improve markers of recovery. Like, if you take a high dose of NSAIDs immediately before or immediately after a session, um, like, your your force output 24, 48 hours after the, after the session will probably be a little bit higher. Uh, creatine kinase levels, probably a little bit lower, soreness, uh, a little bit lower, but in, in both of those cases, um, recovery is better longitudinally. It, it actually might have negative effects on hypertrophy. And so, yeah, like, like some things that improve recovery might help gains over time. Some might have a neutral effect. Some might actually hinder you because they're, uh, uh, leading to what is perceived to be faster recovery because they're, uh, like tamping down on the inflammatory response you actually need for muscle remodeling and adaptation. Um, another example of that is like, there are still like not certainly not as many as there used to be, but there are still some studies that uh, will basically try a supplement or try some sort of like training intervention um, and just look at acute effects on testosterone and growth hormone and just assume that if something causes like a 5% bump in acute testosterone response or like a 10% bump in acute growth hormone response, it's necessarily going to lead to more hypertrophy. Like that gets published in the research that gets disseminated on social media. Um, there's, there's not like the, the longitudinal evidence for that is, uh, somewhere between weak and fully debunked. Um, depending, depending who you ask, I, I I'm in the camp that I don't think that the hormone hypothesis is fully debunked, but that's a that's a methodological question for another day. I, I'd say it's seventy percent of the way debunked. Um, another example is uh, like a lot of research on like warm up protocols and a lot of research on supplements looks at performance during a single training session. So you know, does taking this supplement or doing this particular warm up protocol uh, help you complete eh, three, four, five more reps over three or four sets of an exercise. If it does, if it acutely improves performance, it's going to lead to more hypertrophy, larger strength gains. That is an assumption that is made in the literature all the time. That is an assumption that makes it onto social media that a lot of industry experts will uh, uh, sign off on. Um, and yeah, like in, in a lot of cases, like that stuff is unproven. So I, I, I think there maybe people are thinking about creatine because like creatine does acutely improve performance to some extent and also leads to larger gains over time. And I think I think people just kind of get it in their head that like, oh, well, 
If we see similar acute effects to creatine, we should probably see similar longitudinal effects. Um, and like oftentimes we don't. So uh, uh, sodium bicarbonate is an example of something that acutely imp improves strength endurance performance, like rep performance during a single session. Uh, there are a couple longitudinal studies on it now. Doesn't seem to improve results over time. Uh, caffeine is another one. Like this this was a wild one to me. Like there's so much caffeine research, but we didn't get our first longitudinal study on it until like what, like 18 months ago or something. Um, but yeah, there there's like what one or two longitudinal caffeine studies now. Uh, yeah, acutely improves performance. Doesn't seem to improve gains over time. Uh, and then for just like another example of extrapolation, not necessarily extrapolating acute r results to longitudinal results, but just general extrapolation. Um, a, a lot of the ideas that, that blow up and get popular and, and I'll note like generally this stuff is better in the research. Um, but in terms of where things are taken on social media, uh, there, there will be a study that either just uses like cell culture research where you culture some cells, uh, expose them to some particular molecule or chemical and some particular concentration and just look at the effects like within those cells or, um, you know, you, you've bred a strain of mutant mice that have like a particular gene edit or deletion to have a particular condition. And then you give them like massive doses of a particular drug supplement, whatever, and then look at the effects. And, you know, you might see some really striking results in that type of research. And then people take that uh, and say, oh yeah, so, uh, you as a human, um, not in a Petri dish and not a a, a a mouse bred to have like a particular like genetic condition uh yeah you're you're definitely going to see these effects um yeah the, the dose you'll be taking for this thing will lead to concentrations within your cells that are like 50 times lower than what was used in the cell culture research but yeah like you'll you'll see the same shit um like i said generally that stuff's not quite as bad in research like basic science researchers uh and by basic science researchers i mean not like, like people who aren't doing like translational research where you're not uh, doing interventions on humans that are meant to kind of be applied to a lot of humans. Like basic science is just like bench work, cell culture stuff, uh, like like rodent studies where you're, where you're just kind of really trying to understand basic physiologies, mechanisms, stuff like that. Uh, folks who do that type of research, it's rare to see someone say like, oh yeah, we, we culture these myotubes and... Uh, this uh, this plant extract at this concentration led to a fourfold increase in muscle protein synthesis, and therefore uh, humans should go out and buy this and take it. Like the the researchers in that area tend to tend to be uh, quite cautious. But in terms of once that stuff makes it onto social media, a, a lot of that nuance is lost, and it's just assumed like, yeah, we can we can extrapolate the hell out of this. Um, so yeah, there's. There's a ton of that, just, just either extrapolating from basic science research to uh, uh, assumptions of longitudinal translation in, in humans or uh, just acute studies that are that people hope are a proxy for whatever longitudinal outcome they want without the validation research done to verify that those uh, acute variables are actually like valid strong predictors of whatever longitudinal outcome you're you're interested in. Yeah, I think you pointed out a really interesting dichotomy there um, about research, which is that 
<clears throat> if you are a basic researcher who's doing more mechanistic work, the understanding, the assumption is if you even try to extrapolate this, you're going to make a fool of yourself. So like in their papers, it's very way less common to see those kinds of ambitious uh attempts to extrapolate into clinical outcomes, right? They'll say, hey, here's a starting point. Somebody pick this up and we'll run with it um, through more research, not straight to application. But um, there is that kind of middle ground where it's like, oh, well, we're doing human trials, but we're talking about stuff that happens over eight hours here, right? Yeah. And a lot of times people will say, well, no, but you got to make this thing interesting. You got to spice it up. Tell me what it really means, because nobody really cares about what happens over these eight hours. They want to know what's going to happen over the next eight months. And so there's almost this kind of implied pressure when you're doing human trials that aren't longitudinal to say, yeah, but tell me what what will be the longitudinal outcome of applying this? Uh, So it's an interesting divergence about the kind of different pressures that different types of researchers are under when it comes to, you know, should I try to really sell this as being a useful idea or am I going to just make an ass of myself if I try to do that? Yeah. Um, were you going to say something? Yeah, I, I, I was just going to say, like, I think that's an example where the incentives are kind of fucked yeah. because I, I think if you, I, I think if you pulled a thousand researchers who do a lot of acute human studies in exercise physiology i think 950 of them or more would say like yeah no like you shouldn't you shouldn't extrapolate that stuff like a lot of these proxy measures haven't been validated for for predicting longitudinal outcomes like i think they would sign off on that and then if you pulled up their publication history that those aren't the behaviors you would see yeah and i think there's an extremely good reason for that and that is I mean, ultimately, I mean, ultimately, like it's it's a competitive game, you know, like you you have to get your stuff published um, and hopefully in in pretty good journals for hiring, for career advancement, for getting tenure, et cetera. Um, And it's one of those things where, like, if everyone you're competing against for the finite publication slots in good journals kind of does that stuff too like you kind of have to as well otherwise you are you are telling the section editors and you're telling the reviewers hey like my my research just like isn't as important and impactful as all of this other research um even though like all of that other research is of just like a similar level of important impact um but yeah so if 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 everyone else is like fuck. Well, I kind I kind of got to play this game. Then you either have to play the game too, or just like suffer uh, negative career repercussions for standing true to your beliefs. Which, like, I don't know. I- I'm sure you could make a an interesting ethical argument that that maybe you should do that. Um, but ultimately, like, I don't know, man. Like you, you. You're you're responding to the same incentives that everyone else is, uh, and, and I I think at the end of the day, once you've gone all the way through fucking grad school and gotten your PhD, and then it's just like, well, I'm this pot committed, um, and here's this here's this this tiny little thing I have to do. Where like on some of my papers, I have to add a little paragraph that I don't necessarily agree with completely, but 
I'm I'm so deep in, and that is going to have like a tangible impact on like my future employment situation. I think like almost a hundred percent of people have a very easy time rationalizing that to themselves. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where I think if if there was just kind of like a uh if if there was like more cooperation where you could just get everyone together and everyone collectively agree, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to play this game. None of us feel good about it. It it could just stop. But like it's not going to happen. So, uh yeah, you well, you got you got to play the game everyone else is playing. And then you, even if you were hypothetically to get that to happen, which it won't, uh then you run into the issue where yeah, you know, you've got people within a field who are fighting over a particular piece of the pie. But they're not just trying to convince reviewers and editors that what they're doing is interesting and impactful. They're trying to also convince funding bodies who dish out the money. And that, they, that they, is also true, yeah. They decide how big that piece <laughs> of the pie is. Yeah. And so if, for example, everyone doing, you know, exercise and nutrition research said, hey, we're really going to start you know, understating the impact of our findings and really kind of keeping it low key. I would say accurately stating, but sure. But you know what I mean? R- r- relative to the current situation. Correct. Stating. Yeah. yeah. Directionally compared yeah, yeah. to where we're at now, if we started really kind of, you know, tam- uh, tempering some of those perspectives a little bit, then you might find a situation where it's just no one in the fields getting funded anymore. Yeah, the, uh, not not literally no one, but the the piece of the pie shrinks, and yeah. everyone looks around and say, and says, "I think we shouldn't have made that pact." Yeah, yeah. So it, it the incentives are really challenging when it comes to that particular topic. Um. All right. So I think that does it for this particular episode. Uh. Once again, today is November twenty first. As you're listening to this, uh, the mass Black Friday sale has officially begun. It's only going to last from the 21st through the 28th. So if you want to get the best price of the year and you want to support charity, be sure to check that out at strongerbyscience.com slash mass. Uh, as always, thanks so much for joining us. We hope you have a fantastic Thanksgiving if you happen to celebrate. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.